Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of Activist Lawyer. I am very fortunate to be joined by Hansa Cervenka, who is joining me from Zoom in London today. And he is a solicitor of um, England and Wales and is also a California attorney. He is recognised as a leading figure in the field of online reputation and privacy and is frequently asked to speak on the legal challenges facing victims of online harassment and image-based sexual abuse. Hansa grew up in the Czech Republic and as a teenager he was a frequent lecturer in computer science courses for the public at the Technical University of Ostrava. Due to his background in IT, he now works on the technical aspects of helping people whose reputations have been attacked online. At McAllister Olivarius, Hansa works on a wide variety of cases on both sides of the Atlantic, including civil, employment and data protection litigation in the UK and Title VII and Title IX discrimination cases in the US. He is also head of Queer Rights Lawyers, a practice dedicated to serving the LGBTQ plus community. Hansa received his BA cum laude in Music and International Studies at McAllister College in Minnesota, USA. And while in Minnesota, Hansa worked in the law offices of Jeff Anderson and Associates for two years, where he assisted in numerous lawsuits against child sex abusers. He completed his legal studies at the University of Law, Bloomsbury. Outside of office hours, he is an enthusiastic photographer, conductor and singer. So I'm really excited to have you join us today and discuss the really interesting work that you do, Hansa. Just to get us started, I guess I'm interested in where it all began. And if you could maybe take our listeners back in time a little bit as to why, you know, you decided to get into law, because you've got a very, um, you know, extensive um, specialisation there in different aspects. What drew you to the legal world? Yes, thank you. I did hop around a little bit before I landed in law. Um, I took a bit of a strange journey, I suppose. I am originally from the Czech Republic um, and lived there throughout throughout my childhood. When I was 16, I was fortunate enough to uh, manage to get a scholarship to study at a United World College in Italy, which is an international school in Italy. And that uh, kind of completely changed my life um, in, I think, making it international, uh, which is something that I very much wanted to have, um, but also in um, making me think internationally and look at uh, issues from a global perspective. Um, that then, when I went to university, uh, influenced the degrees that I chose, or at least one of them. I studied international studies to kind of, again, look at um, global conflicts and um, just the ways how present-day issues manifest themselves differently around the world. Um, I also did a degree in music, um, and for a while I thought that that would, be, that would be my home. I wanted to become a conductor and a professional musician. Um, but... Through internships at law firms, um, during my studies, I thought, huh, the, the law could be quite a fun place. Um, I worked uh, from the beginning at um, civil rights firms, McAllister Olivarius and Jeff, Jeff Anderson's law firm in, in Minnesota. Um, and I liked the way how they practiced law in that sort of took the abstract um, 
notion of trying to help people, trying to make the world a better place and made it a bit more practical, a bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the idea that rather than having this sort of impact through academia, uh, which was another career path that I considered, both of my parents are teachers. So I think that, that was one of the reasons why I was, why I was drawn to it. Um, I, I like the more focused aspect of civil litigation where you're, you're trying to make a bigger argument, uh, trying to change the law, um, but ultimately the vehicle for that change are people. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened, it's this, and you're using a specific situation to shed light on a bigger problem. And ideally, you want to um, help uh, the people, represent the clients, put them in a better place, give them a sense of justice. Um, but also perhaps the organizations that, that were sued or maybe even the society at large uses that case to reflect change and make, um, the world better for others. So I'd like that kind of cause and effect, sure. um, relationship. Um, and so eventually after I graduated from, from a university in America, came back to London, um, as a paralegal to work at McAllister Olivarius. Um, eventually became a trainee, qualified, and a few years ago um, sat for the California bar and passed, thank God, because it was a horrible experience. I'm glad that I got it on the first try. I definitely was not looking forward to a repeat. Um, And so now I'm able to represent clients both in um, England and Wales and in uh, in America and California, which um, I personally like because it brings a lot of variety to my work, uh, but also keeps the international angle um, alive. Sure. Excellent. And McAllister Olivarius itself sounds like a fantastic place to work and very specific in your in the areas of practice. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the the firm itself? Yeah. Um, So a lot of our work centers on representing victims of discrimination, uh, be it, um, uh, say, failure to promote uh, women in the workplace compared to men, or uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault. We also do um, child sex abuse cases. Um, we're also quite active in uh, trafficking cases. Um, and um, a few years ago, uh, or I should say, actually, throughout the history of the firm, as far as I know, we've been trying to stay um, apace with what discrimination meant at the time. Sure. So, so a few years ago, the dialogue really started encompassing um, what was then called revenge pornography. Now uh, we're calling it image-based sexual abuse or intimate image abuse, which is a term that I prefer, and began to see that as a both an offshoot of uh, sexual harassment, um, but also overlap with privacy law. Uh-huh. And uh, data protection, of course, the GDPR that was passed a few years, a few years later, came um, entered the scene as well. And so, being alive to how um, the way how people discriminate against each other and hurt each other evolves, and encompassing those uh, new areas, um, and also most recently, I've I've been pushing for the firm to represent more intentionally queer people and um, uh, focus on discrimination against queer people just as much as we're focusing on discrimination against women or discrimination on the grounds of race Mm -hmm. and other forms of discrimination. And that's really the core of our practice. Um, 
both in the UK and in the US, occasionally um, in other areas around the world too. We sort of go where where the problem lies. And if it's within our powers to fix it, we try to. Okay, and forgive me for not being a very technically minded person and I'm aware of these new um, terms um, under which you're, you're working. But do you notice, I mean, are there differences and is it difficult, I suppose, um, to deal with the challenges around, let's say, for example, um, you know, online harassment, um, intimate, um, Im- the, the abuse aspects as, as well um, between the US, the UK and any, any other countries. I mean, it must be uh, difficult to get your head around the various pieces of legislation. How does that play out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, that's one of the big problems that I have with the area and the way how, how, we, how we tackle the problem because our approach has been... Um, and by our approach, I mean the, the countries around the world, has been very fragmented. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're still sort of operating in this old world um, uh, national law perspective where each country passes its own laws. And um, uh, that, of course, makes sense in many ways. But if you're trying to tackle a gr- global problem, yeah. each country having its own specific laws, little differences here, uh, little differences there, um, and tries to tackle a global problem, that's difficult. Yeah. One of the reasons why, um, you know, if you, if you think of international law, you think of shipping, um, you think of um, international human rights. There, there have been global um, uh, uh, areas of our lives that um, countries around the world have recognized, you know what, we really should just sit around a big table and figure out some sort of standards yeah. that we can all operate by to um, actually make this possible. We haven't done that yet uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to the internet and the sort of specific uh, problems that, that it brings. And so um, what's legal in one country is not legal in another country. Um, and uh, that creates complications. Um, it also creates impossible situations at times if, say, uh, the perpetrator lives in a country where uh, their conduct isn't illegal, yeah. but the victims live in a country where the conduct is illegal, but there aren't really any easy um, legal redresses in those sure. situations. Because how can, say, a court in London um, uh, criminalize conduct uh, by somebody in, um, I don't know, Ghana, Mm-hmm. who's never stepped foot in London. And it may be that in Ghana, the conduct isn't even illegal. Yeah. And so you, you, there's a lot of harm that can happen uh, that people can inflict on each other. Yeah. And oftentimes, unfortunately, in circumstances that are kind of outside of the law, um, and it really matters, uh, or, or rather the problem with intimate image abuse um, has, I think, underlined the fact that we need to start talking in a much more harmonized way when it comes to what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable online. Yeah. Because the difference between the perpetrator living down the street from you or on the other side of the planet from you can be stark. Yeah. And I mean, apart from the legal technicalities there, I mean, that's a huge piece, I guess, that will take you know years of um, kind of discussion and negotiation. I mean, are people reluctant to come forward around um, these crimes in the first place? What challenges might present for the victim? I mean, that in itself must be off-putting, the fact that there may not be an easy route to address matters legally. 
But in your experience, is it something that people are willing to come forward on? I, I'd imagine it's very difficult in the same way that any sexual abuse or domestic violence cases are. What's your experience been with victims? Yeah, um, it, I would say that it, it's very difficult for many people to come forward. Um, um, a lot of our sex lives are still um, source of shame that the society, um, you know, puts on us. Um, and so the idea that, um, or, or the worry that um, people's response is going to essentially amount to victim blaming mm. is very real in many people's minds. And um, so that acts as a big deterrent, I think, to coming forward. Um, and the barriers in, in the law that then, if you do come forward, end up often stopping uh, victims from actually achieving justice are also significant. Uh, we know that um, um, in, in England and in other countries around the world, police forces are um, having really suboptimal, and that's a kind way to put it, yeah. track records when it comes to, say, prosecutions of rape. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that rape is the same as um, online abuse. It's not that simple, but at least rape is an offense that we've recognized for a long time um, and legal systems have had, um, especially in old countries like, like, like the UK, had a long time to think about how to handle them, reflect, change, improve, and so on and so forth. Um, but in the case of um, online abuse and intimate image abuse, those are relatively new offenses. Um, and so if, if the legal system is still uh, not properly helping uh, women who come forward with with a rape accusation, the the chances of th that same system uh, performing well uh, when when a person comes with a um, complaint of intimate image abuse mm -hmm. are just so much so much lower, and and I see time and time and again. Um, uh, clients or potential clients coming to the firm and saying that they tried to go to the police and it just didn't go anywhere. Um, that's not to say that there are in cases where the police helps. Uh, there certainly are. Mm. But I think the overwhelming sense is that it's not a very um, effective way to seek justice. And that's, uh, that's a huge problem because yeah. a lot of the laws that have been passed in this area are criminal laws. Mm. Um, in England and Wales, the uh, the statute that was passed in 2017, or even the the reformed statute that is going to hopefully become law through the passage of the online safety bill, it's it's criminal mm. uh, 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 criminal statutes, and so the police are the gateway yeah. to justice. Mm. Um, and if that gateway isn't um, open nearly as wide as it should be, then uh, that really starts eroding the sense of justice that victims can um, achieve and that absolutely acts as a detractor uh, against coming forward. Yeah. And aside, I mean, when you think about it, these are challenges, I suppose, in the global global context that face victims and survivors of, of abuse, this type of abuse and all types of abuse. But I'm interested as well in, in your work and, and zooming in on a very particular environment. And it's because I, I had experience working within, um, you know, this structure myself and it's within third level education and how um, there are huge problems around reporting 
um, seri- incidents of rape and sexual abuse within the context of the, the third level setting around globally again. Um, and I remember speaking to both students and staff and being absolutely shocked at the fact that there were no no mechanisms in place to deal with this. And very often matters, serious matters and serious incidents were swept under the rug. A lot of the time it was because, you know, it would draw bad press, I guess, and um, yeah. unwanted attention to the various institutions. Um, that was a long time ago, and I'm hoping things have moved on. But I know you've been working with students in particular around representations um, for those who have suffered um, online, or sorry, harassment at many levels but also those who haven't uh, but would like to know that there are structures in place to support them if they if they had what's your experience been around that um just as difficult as as, as the issues that we that we discussed earlier to be honest um the in my experience well so my experience is primarily in representing um complainants mm-hmm. um against um their university, and, and we usually get involved um, long after, say, the sexual assault happened, uh, often long after the internal complaints process mm-hmm. um, at the university has um, started, sometimes even concluded. And what um, we often deal with are not necessarily the claims that the complainant may have against the uh, student who they alleged um um, assaulted them, but against the university for the way how they handled their investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I would say, an expectation on uh, students and parents and just to a degree, the society at large, that universities should um, have some sort of duty of care towards their students, yeah. that, that these are still young people. Uh, they're not They're not employees. Um, so sort of the body of law that we have that that establishes the relationship between employer and employee and the sort of duty of care that happens there doesn't apply. Um, but there is a sense that the university as an institution should take care of their students and, and protect them. Mm-hmm. On a legal, um, from a legal standpoint, that is nowhere near to being clearly established. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what has happened um, until recently uh, is that um, universities have adopted a complaints procedure. So if a, if a student wants to complain against another student for, um, say, sexual assault or rape, there, there's a procedure to do that. Um, but that procedure has, in many cases, been kind of borrowed from criminal law and focused a lot more on the rights of the accused person than the rights of the complainant. And the experience of a lot of students that I've worked with um, that have gone through this process has been um, very much, you, you make a complaint and then the complaint takes on its own life. You're sort of removed from the process as a complainant. You don't really get to know the ins and outs of the process because it, the accused student's right to continue studying at the university is uh, possibly in danger. And so the universities uh, have been a lot more focused on tending to the accused student to make sure that the process is fair 
for them. And that, of course, is important. But if, as a result, the complainant is left in the dark, um, often um, doesn't have um, updates about the investigation, uh, doesn't have uh, access straightforward access to counseling, for example, um, or other measures that would uh, make them feel protected while the investigation is ongoing. Yeah. That's, um, that's deeply troubling. It is. Um, mm. It's oftentimes in um, the cases that, that I've been involved with where the um, students need to be separated. So uh, for protection of, of the complainant, the um uh, the university decides that the complainant and the um, accused person should not take the same classes or be present in the same buildings or in the same spaces at the same time, for example. That is something that is not always achieved. And when it is, though, oftentimes it's the, it's the victim that ends up having to not go to certain buildings or change classes. Um, and that also, I think, is, is is problematic because um, why is why is uh, the victim having to change their schedule um, rather than the accused person or perhaps why aren't both changing their schedules because we also know statistically speaking the majority of complainants um, of sexual assault are women and the majority of uh, people who are accused are men that's not to say that that's what happens all the time but that's the majority and so you, uh, the university policies often then enter a realm of discrimination, perhaps indirect discrimination, to look at, well, you've got all of these rules, and on some level it makes sense why they're set up the way that they are, but let's look at the effect that it has, sure. uh, that, that you've got all of these women victims who are, um, in fact, being harmed more in, in some cases by the complaint system than perhaps of, because of the incident that, that first led to the complaint. Yeah. Um, that is not an uncommon feeling for students, uh, student victims to have. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult area. I think it's difficult for universities too because yeah. um, um, I, I, I believe that many, if not all of them, are trying to do the right thing, trying to strike a balance. Um, and they can at times find themselves in a quasi-judicial role without um, really having the resources and, and, and the full procedures and the experience of doing that. So everybody is in a, everybody is in a, in a tough spot on some level, but um, the victims uh, who end up often being our clients um, tend to walk away from, from the process often in a, in a worse shape than they were when they started it. And that's a problem. Yeah, so lots, um, you know, room for more um, robust, I suppose, processes in place and legislation around that. Um, apart from uh, that aspect of your work, I know you've worked extensively on uh, race discrimination cases as well as sex discrimination cases. Can mm. you take us through some of your, your work on those areas? Absolutely. Um, so w one of the cases that I was involved in was um, the case Mander v. Um, Royal uh, Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead, which was a case where our, our clients were of, of Sikh heritage and they tried to adopt a child. Um, and, when, and they went through their local authority to do that. 
but then we're told that although they would be uh, suitable adoptive parents, um, they could not actually apply uh, and that white couples would be given priority because there were only white children available. And ultimately, um, they were told uh, if they wanted to, uh, or well, they, they were told to consider adopting from India, um, which uh, at, at which point they, they gave us a call um, to see what, what we can do. And we um, ended up suing the local authority for race discrimination. And um, we, we ended up going all the way to trial and, and we won. Um, but then it, it was an interesting case. Mm-hmm. It was, it was early on. I actually started the case as a trainee. Uh, but by the time the trial happened, I had qualified. Um, which tells you a bit about the slow passage of justice, yeah, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, but it, it, it was, it was an early lesson in really trusting the strength of, of the case and the, and the sort of, and the initial assessment. Because I think we as lawyers are often, of course, um, trying to be nuanced yeah. as evidence gets gets exchanged. Every case ends up getting um, on slightly thinner eyes than it was in the beginning because you just know a lot more about the other side's case yeah. as, as, as you as you go along. But it was uh, it was it was kind of interesting that the case ended up going all all the way to trial. I I thought that it that it wouldn't because just some of the statements that the local authority made seemed quite mm. clearly to be um, uh, to be to amount to treatment different based on our, our client's race but but it ended up going all the way to trial and it sort of taught me this lesson of just trusting trusting your instinct trusting the case because just because the other side is um, really really disagreeing with you doesn't actually mean that there's validity yeah. in that, and 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 um, of course, a, a lot of litigation is ultimately driven to a point of settlement. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but uh, we're we're trying to, I think, um, make peace not, not not make make peace with the other with the other side. Find some common ground. See, okay, can we can we can we settle this? Can we not drag this out all the way to trial? And so when it does, it, it, it's almost a little disconcerting that oh gosh how, how how come how come we're going all the way to trial how come we weren't able to settle this yeah. um but that's not necessarily a bad thing and sometimes how justice justice works and actually um a good idea too because it, it's important for cases to um not always settle because if, if they do then uh, there go opportunities to refine the law sure. um, and and change it. Uh, ultimately, a settlement is very rarely public, um, and certainly almost never something that you can truly rely on from a legal perspective. So, actually, having cases go to trial yeah. and having judgments uh, that can uh, clarify the law and move it forward is just as important. And set um, important precedents, I guess. And on that point, not only are you involved, you know, in your day-to-day case management and representing um, your clients, um, your expertise has allowed you to contribute, I guess, to changes within the law and changes within policy. Um, how, what areas um, have you been able to impact so far? Um, a big area that I've been able to impact. Um, was the um, law commission's consultation on the offenses surrounding 
um, intimate image abuse um, that happened a few years ago. It concluded, I believe, in 2021 uh, in the middle of pandemic. Um, and uh, I was very I was very involved with that, trying to push them um, to make the legislation wider for context. Uh, the sharing, the non-consensual sharing of an intimate image uh, in England and Wales has been uh, illegal since 2015, but only in circumstances where the intent of the perpetrator was to cause the victim distress. Mm. That at the time seemed like a good idea, and I think in many cases it is a good idea, but um, there are many uh, circumstances where uh, the intent to cause distress isn't made out, but the damage is still very much real and um, it's kind of almost Christ for justice. And so for a long time, we've been criticizing the law that actually doesn't go nearly as far as it, as it should um, to properly protect people from having um, their intimate images shared uh, without their consent. Yeah. Um, and so we, we advocated for a, uh, for a broader um, interpretation of the law. I also wanted the law to be a lot more explicitly protective of the queer community, particularly of, of trans people, um, because the uh, given, say, the definition of what an intimate area means, uh, you can get really very technical and quite biological too. Um, the, uh, you know, chest area, female breast tissue. Um, yeah. The law uses a lot of a lot of language that um, is biological and makes sense on that level, but really starts to fall apart once you once you look at it from a more gender inclusive lens, which I think is important yeah. um, to do. And so, also advocated for that. The the law commission ended up uh, coming up with I thought rather strong recommendations and actually um, um, it, it's nice that we're recording this now because we're what a, a few weeks away from the from the online safety bill um, having reached its final stage awaiting waiting royal assent and some of the changes were were implemented in it um, which I was which I was glad to see unfortunately none of the none of the trans inclusive language made it into the actual text of the bill really which okay. Um, which, which I think is a is a, is 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 a shame. It's it's it, my 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 take on it is that it's important on, on the one hand important to have general language in in laws, particularly when it when they deal with the internet, which is changing at a rapid pace. You can't get too specific because um, you know you you could you could you could write the law and talk a lot about um, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And in five or 10 years time, nobody's going to use those and everybody's going to use something completely different. And suddenly, actually, the application of the law could be hampered by the fact that it was just a little too specific to what was happening at the time. And we know how long it takes to pass laws. And so um, it's important that the laws are kind of um, general and sanitized so that they can be applied in future contexts such as they may be. But that does come, I think, at the um, at the expense of properly um, um, extending and explicitly extending the laws to to specific situations, yeah. um, such as you know the 
the complications or not the complications, complexities surrounding what an intimate area may mean for a trans person, for what it may mean for a trans man versus a trans woman um, and uh, other um, complexities that uh, kind of the lawmakers ultimately, I suppose, leave to the, to the courts yeah. to, to expressly recognize. But uh, who has the resources to take the case all the way to court? How long does that take? Um, how well is uh, a lesson going to be drawn from a court judgment as opposed to a law being passed? There's, there's fine balancing between how specific to be in a statute. Um, and I think the government could have done a, a better job at explicitly extending the law to more circumstances mm-hmm. um, than it has. But I suppose the, the fight continues. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there will be there will be more consultations out there and sure. it's an issue that will that will keep on evolving. Yeah, absolutely. And I know at the moment you have a, a current case that's ongoing around discrimination. I think it's a New York-based uh, matter. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. We're, I'm, I'm representing a group of um, um, ex-employees at a major hospital in New York um, who are suing for discrimination and uh, retaliation and, and other other causes of action. And it's an example of, I think, us trying to um, make sure that the conversation around what forms discrimination takes stays current. Uh, because um, too often, I think, the law tends to be a bit conservative. Um, we're kind of focused on precedent and precedent of course means decisions of the past and so we kind of keep on looking back to try to find support for our argument today when I think it's just as important to be looking forward and looking at at trends that are happening and what I think was considered discrimination say in the 1970s when in the US a lot of the federal laws were enacted or um, even the 90s and what's considered to be discrimination and harassment now is very different for, for context, um, slightly left field, but until um, the mid 90s, I believe in, in the UK, it was the, the law did not recognize that um, a man could rape his wife. Mm. It, was, it was just, it was just seen that, that's, that, that rape cannot occur in the context of, of a marriage because there's, I suppose, some sort of an unwritten, agreed idea to, to have sex with each other. Um, that seems completely archaic yeah. to us now in 2023, um, but seems a good idea for a long time. For, for, a long, for a long time, and so if some of these laws um, predate even this, what I would, would consider to be a sea change, their, their value, I think, does get eroded over time. And, and we need to make sure that that we look at what um, forms of discrimination takes now. And so, this, this case in New York, one of the questions it's asking is whether or not gaslighting can amount, in fact, to discrimination. Oh. Um, mm. And again, if you look at the statute, it doesn't say gaslighting in, in it anywhere. Mm. It doesn't say what forms discrimination takes. It just says discrimination on the basis of sex or race, etc. Yeah. Is um, um, is, is not legal. And so um, I think it's important uh, part of my activism to kind of try to see whether the definition of discrimination that we have now um, is actually still current or whether the last time courts 
um, and by extension, employees in the society at large have looked at the definition. Um, it's actually changed and uh, it takes a new form now and we, we need to recognize it so that people can be protected from the discrimination of today rather than the discrimination of 10 years ago. Mm. And I mean, on that point around activism, and I guess um, you're heavily involved in shaping, um, you know, the areas of law within which you work, both here and and in, in the US. I'm interested in getting your opinion on and your thoughts on activism and the law, both in a kind of general context and in relation to your more specific work. I mean, do the two work together? Uh, we've had so many different ver- answers on, on this question on the podcast, but I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on that activism and the law. I think it's a really interesting question. And I think there is a tension there. Um, Like I said, with with the law uh, being a bit more conservative, looking at precedent, um, it sort of, continuing things as they are, sort of maintaining the status quo is seen as a a good thing fundamentally, because it kind of means that we can trust the legal system and that uh, we can conduct our lives knowing what the standards are. And that's important. But on the other hand, the kind of activism that, that I do uh, is a lot more on the liberal end of the spectrum, mm. perhaps with a you know little spice of disruption in it um, <laughs> and kind of expecting actually just because we've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean it's good to continue. Yeah. And um, so there is, I think, a little clash there um, between, um, uh, between the law and activism. Not also to mention the fact that, of course, we as lawyers are heavily regulated. What we can do and cannot do can have all sorts of yeah. can have all, all sorts of consequences. So I think that also kind of um, makes us a lot more comfortable to just deal with um, uh, the the narrow confines of 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 our work and leave our work in the office and then um, kind of keep our mouth shut a little bit just in <laughs> just in case, yeah. uh, just in case. And that's also not not ideal. I don't think. And so I think it's important to kind of be mindful of that tension and, and see whether there's any flex in it. And like I said, keep on keep on looking forward and um, envision or, 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 or advocate for a change where the law where the law needs it. And I think there are a lot of areas of the law that, that need change. Yeah, and I mean you just touched on a few you know, within your area of work. Um and I'm sure there's listeners here who will be wanting to know, um, you know, more about your work, but also how they might become involved in it. And I mean, would you recommend it? I, I could see that you're very passionate about your work. And it's fantastic that not only are you representing clients and, you know, working on civil litigation cases, which are ultimately to, you know, get compens- some form of compensation, you know, for the client and for the victim. But there's so much more behind the scenes and you seem to be working on um, within work and outside of work um, really progressing law and policy that will make effective change within our society. And so what tips or, you know, advice would you have for anybody who would like to get into your specific area of practice? And then, I mean, one question that comes up for us is people who are about to graduate or are thinking about getting into law and they'll say, I want to be an activist lawyer. And and that seems to be a term that we're hearing a lot more frequently, which is good, you know, as long as it's not coming from the government, obviously. (laughs) But, um, you know, people are really wondering, you know, how can we get into this this area? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, happy, happy to share my thoughts. I, I think it's a great area of the law. Um, it, for people who are considering 
um, sort of other forms of um, activism or just sort of um, uh, bringing about change. So if people are torn between maybe becoming maybe becoming an academic, maybe going into uh, the NGO sphere, um, I think sort of my little corner of the law is a, is a good mix of is a good mix of all of that. Mm-hmm. What I've what I wish I had known earlier um, about um, the kind of work that I do is that the law is only one piece of the puzzle at the end of the day. And actually on, on a, um, on a day to day basis, non legal skills are just as important as the legal skills. Um, a lot of the clients that I represent are clients who've been through trauma mm-hmm. and, um, that, uh, can surface in different ways. Uh, sometimes it doesn't at all. Sometimes it, in, in every kind um, conversation, um, it, it surfaces. And actually the amount of um, intentional communication that that requires is um, quite high. And it's not something that they necessarily teach you in law school mm-hmm. um, uh, or certainly in, in, English, in English law school. Um, but it's just so, so important, uh, knowing how to, uh, not only actually practice as a lawyer, but explain what you're doing to the client who are often, uh, in, in my area, lay people, uh, perhaps, um, or hopefully this may be the only time they ever speak to a lawyer or litigate, uh, people who never thought that they would be litigating. Um, and so the law can be quite a scary thing and a complex thing. It takes a long time. Why does it take a long time? Um, I wish I had a good answer to that question. Um, but but there's there's just a lot outside of the um, of, of the textbook that, that the work requires. And I find that really exciting. Um, I have a huge deal of admiration and respect for the clients that I work with. Um, it takes a, a tremendous amount of courage to stand up and um, file a lawsuit uh, based on discrimination or, or harassment. Um, and so I'm always humbled by, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by that, but also reminded of just, you know, how, just how, how much um, of a switch it sometimes requires from being a lawyer to actually just being a person um, and explaining to the client on the other end of the phone line um, not just the law, but also what it means in practice and um, kind of helping them gauge whether um, a particular development is a good one, bad one, important, not so important. You know, there are, there are a lot of things that when lawyers talk to each other, lawyers talk to each other, they don't need to spend too much time on because they kind of know the context. People in the street don't necessarily do, and they shouldn't because it's <laughs> not not everybody needs to know everything about how the law works. That's what lawyers are here for. Yeah. But explaining explaining it and and properly um, representing them to make sure that they can actually and building that trust really with the client, uh, because my type of work requires, um, or I can only do as, as good of a job as I can if if I, if I know everything that happened yeah. and knowing everything that happened about. Um, sexual assault, rape, or or, or even even a gaslighting or or a privacy breach um, is just difficult. People don't tend to share all of those details with the first person they meet, um, and so it's important to build that rapport um, and 
that's, that's a very important set of skills yeah. that isn't picked up in a, in, in a law school and is just so important. And just a final add-on kind of question to that, <laughs> you're obviously a very creative person, so your work, I mean, that work that you've described, and anyone can only listen to see how demanding it is and how fast changing the law within your area is as well. Mm. Does your music and your interests outside of work, um, I know you're a singer as well, does that help you switch off or does it help you kind of, you know, just relax, I suppose, and uh, make your work easier? <laughs> Yeah, it definitely helps me switch off. Yeah. Um, it also kind of inspires me to um, think differently and um, um, be be creative in the law because I think that's where the where, that's where the real fun is. It, mm-hmm. It's so nice and well to just do the same thing over and over, um, but actually um, carving out a, a creative path. To a solution to a problem, I, I find I find really really exciting, and all of the problems that that I end up tackling do require that amount of thinking. So, yes, I re- I definitely recommend having something something outside of uh, the sometimes grim work um, or reality that that this that this work brings. I um, absolutely love classical music. Sometimes I think, oh, what would life be if I became if I became a conductor? But I think I'm quite <laughs> quite happy where I'm at, and just having uh, just go, going to going to music is something that relaxes me and brings yeah. me joy, rather than something that um, is my li- livelihood. Is not a bad way to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, look, you've been so generous with your time and with the the insights that you've given into your work. Uh, it's such an interesting area and I really appreciate you coming on today to, d- to discuss that. Um, Hansa, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to following your work and speaking with you again, hopefully at some point. Thank you so much, sir. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and be part of your program. I love the work that you do and hopefully our paths will cross again. Absolutely. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.